Hello and welcome to episode 349 of the Crate and Crowbar, a PC gaming podcast being recorded on the 19th of November 2020. I'm Marsh Davis and this evening I'm John by... I'm John by... <laughs> I'm joined by Tom Senior. Hello. And Graham Smith. Hello. What's the news this week? Wait, what is the news, Marsh? <laughs> you tell us. <laughs> I thought you. I thought you were going to introduce uh, a question. Oh yes, I was actually. You're quite right. And um, I was wondering, does anyone on this podcast care about the next generation of consoles that has just been released this week? No. That's a fantastic noise. That noise was the sound of total ambivalence. <laughs> I'm not necessarily like a console early adopter, but I mean, I, I'm I'm usually kind of more excited by it than i am this generation and i feel like a lot of our peers on 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 the twitters are very excited uh i just haven't got the bug at all this year i don't know what, no, what that means good. about me or whether it's about the industry probably about me isn't it i don't think that's true much i don't think it's about you i think it's a lack of launch titles i think there's a lack of kind of um so for example the playstation 5 has sort of uh bandied around a lot of marketing about the audio of the console uh, but when I see footage from the PS5 and indeed from the next Xbox, like it looks the same as the stuff that runs my PS4 Pro or my PC. I, I just don't see the leap that would require me to pay £500 to, to mm-hmm. access this slight level of uh, graphical upgrade. Um, and the games just aren't there yet, as I said before. Well, I don't know if it's specifically a lack of games on the consoles so much as just uh, a time of plenty on the, the system that I predominantly play on, I have so much I can play on my PC. I don't need anything else, really. Yeah, that's how I sort of feel as well. I think I have a little bit of fear of missing out when I see people playing Spider-Man Miles Morales on the PS5. But I also have FOMO about Assassin's Creed Valhalla on the PC and Watch Dogs Legion on the PC and about 10 other games that have come yeah, out. Yeah, sure over the past month that I just haven't had time for yet. And so, yeah, there's nothing spectacular on the consoles to make me want to dive well, in. Also, my backlog is just so enormous. Like, I still want to get properly stuck into Divinity Original Sin 2, um, which <laughs> I've played like 20 hours of and didn't get off the first island. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a whole lifetime of game there waiting for me. Um, I just feel like we're just sort of... This is a very good problem to have <laughs> in, the, in the sense that um, there are so many good games on our platform that we just don't need to upgrade or go to the next generation until the very moment that we want to, which is, feels like a shift to me. That feels different to the, to the last generation. To their credit, I think the console makers have realized this. Like, I think they have realized that there has been a sea change in the way games are produced, the quantity of games available and in the kind of leaps you're going to get from hardware upgrades and so microsoft especially their strategy is clearly that they're going to release new iterations of that xbox every two years or so yeah and it's going to be a a much more gradual upgrade path from here on out and obviously they're, they're trying to get people to sign up to a subscription service with xbox game pass um but it you know, and, and Sony aren't quite as far as advanced on that line, but between the PS4 and the PS Pro, 
and now the PlayStation 5, it sort of feels like there's going to be a new PlayStation sooner rather than later. Like, it's not going mm. to be another 10-year-long console generation, is it? No. Um, so I do feel like, yeah, like the, the problem that we are identifying right now, the reason why we don't want a new console, the console manufacturers have realized that as well, and so have adapted their business model to suit in some way. I th- yeah, I think Microsoft's particularly on point this generation by actually sort of trying to create the Netflix of games, which is what they've been trying to do for years and what um, a lot of the platform makers have been trying to do with like streaming services, uh, which have never quite worked because the bandwidth, especially in our country, <laughs> is not quite good enough to actually realize that dream. Um, but the idea that you could sort of sign up to Xbox, uh, Xbox Microsoft Game Pass and just get access to all the blockbuster games super super good i think you've taken advantage of that recently much actually yeah just to get um uh, assassin's creed and watchdogs but um i may need to revise how good value that is because uh i feel like i've played a fucking ton of assassin's creed now Mm. and there's so so much more of it (laughs) (laughs) that uh by the time i finish that game i may well have paid more for it on monthly Mm, subscriptions than i would have by by buying it outright i think i will get bored of it before that point and still save money on the deal but yeah (laughs) (laughs) i think it's it's worth noting as well that like hardware wise the xbox i'm gonna get the name wrong the xbox series x um is actually good <laughs> like it's mm. a good console and for the price what you're getting is a much more powerful pc than you would be able to get for that amount of money if you were actually buying a pc yeah um you know it would cost you probably twice as much like i think the xbox series x is like 500 quid or something like that it, you know the graphics card alone that's in it would cost you 300 mm. Um, and so, like, if if I was in a position where, this is assuming I'm not a PC games journalist, if I was in a position where my PC was out of date and I was looking to upgrade, I'd probably be looking at 500 quid to upgrade my PC or more to buy a whole new PC. At which point, looking at the Xbox Series X, I probably would be tempted in that situation. Yeah, the, the PC sort of um ecosystem is an absolute mess at the moment um like the the shortage of new graphics cards and how expensive they are like so so expensive uh given like the shortage and the level of demand means that it's just like uh, like at the moment in particular i'm not I, I can't afford to upgrade my pc and i'm a professional <laughs> sort of uh and you know, I, I cover the pc professionally and i, I like if if i even could get hold of the latest gtx i wouldn't be able to pay for it uh so i think that's just something's sort of like squashed in the market that's actually made it much much worse for pc gamers uh in the the last year um presumably like covid but also production issues etc so yeah console looking pretty good right now Yeah, I don't know. I know. I think uh, there's always the the, the fact that uh, I need uh, my PC to to do other things on, um, you know, creative work that requires quite a beefy graphics card, etc. So I don't I don't think I'm ever going to be in that position where I 
you know, I just have a PC for emails or something and then have a console for games. I'm always going to have a PC that's capable of gaming because I need a PC that's capable of building games on it. Sure. There was some other news uh, just today that uh, IO Interactive, the makers of Hitman, have picked up uh, the Bond license, it seems. They're making Project Bond. Project 007, I think is what it's called at this point. It's the origin of Bond. It's uh, Bond's, how Bond became Bond. (laughs) Is how he gains his double O status. Um, he, he, he murders a man in a bathroom. We already saw that. <laughs> Quite a short uh, hitman level as they go. Yeah, he makes an incredibly inappropriate uh, approach to a woman in uh, her own shower on a boat, uh, <laughs> which is actually something that happens several times in very Bond, Bond films. Um, yeah, I, I think this is, everyone has said on Twitter and stuff, that they're completely right. This is an absolutely brilliant marriage of license and developer given that the whole vibe of hitman is already james bond uh just without a massive misogynist as the character um <laughs> so it's gonna be interesting to see how they uh translate bond into that kind of mold i mean 47 isn't a misogynist but only in as far as he despises all human beings <laughs> he has no feelings for anything yeah he's an actual sociopath um <laughs> But uh, yeah, Bond's got all of these kind of tropes and things that you kind of, I think developers want to nod to, and a lot of those are out of date, and I'm kind of interested to see how they navigate that, I think. I'm curious how much like Hitman it's going to be, because obviously Hitman already has exotic locations all over the world, it's a globetrotting story, it's got Mm. social stealth stuff and assassination and combat, Um, but... IO have made other games other than just um, Hitman, and so I wonder if you know are they just going to do something very similar to Hitman with Bond at its core, or are they going to try and capture you know a larger audience? Because that's the thing with Hitman is that it's a it's a popular game, it's a successful game, but it's not a super successful game. Like mm. it was wasn't su- successful enough for Square Enix. Um, when they were publishing it, and whereas Bond is obviously one of the biggest, you know, IP licenses in the world, and so like if you're IO, are you really thinking, oh, we're just going to do James Bond, but do it like Hitman and make it this kind of like niche thing that's going to sell a couple million copies, or do you start to get tempted and think, no, actually, we're going to we want to do big like action set pieces and QTEs and these things that will make it more accessible to a broader audience that have an interest in Bond but are going to get confused by um, the more complex systems and controls of a Hitman game. Yeah, Yeah. that's my fear for it, is that because, I mean, before IO made the the last two incredibly good Hitman games, they'd also made a whole bunch of fairly bunk (laughs) Hitman games, right? Which were seduced by the idea of turning Hitman into one of these cinematic story-driven franchises. That was not playing to their strengths. And I worry with a license which is itself obviously narratively led, they may have their hands forced, essentially, to make something more cinematic. Maybe they're going to make it like mm. Kane and Lynch and it's all going to be shaky cam and... A man's arse, pixelated. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I I think, like, you're both... uh, completely correct like they're going to be under huge like studio pressure and you know that it's a huge license where the stakeholders want to control how bond is shown 
how Bond comes across. Um, so that's going to limit their creativity, and that potentially means it won't be such a sandbox as Hitman has been. But we'll see. Mm. That's just pure supposition. Um, but we'll see. What you've been playing, Graham? I've been playing the Pathless, which is a name I struggle to say and pronounce correctly. Um, it's the new game from the developers of Abzu. Um, did mm. you? Did either of you play that? Yeah, yeah I love that. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, so Abzu is this really gorgeous underwater, um, how would you describe it, kind of like action-adventure, kind of in the mode of journey. In fact, I think the developers might have some previous participation in journey. In fact, I think they spun off from that company. Cool. And the Pathless shares some of the same DNA. It's it's a a third-person game set in a big world, on land this time, lots of grass and beautiful trees and that sort of stuff. And you're you've you've come here as this kind of um, you can't speak. You're like a warrior coming to this strange land. The old gods have been captured and turned evil, and you are coming here to bring light to restore light back to the island. And off in the distance, there's this kind of upside down fiery mountain that you know you're going to, you'll be, you'll be working towards across the course of the game. So it feels quite journey like. Yeah, it's very journey. Yeah. In terms of, um, it has the kind of like quiet poise, (laughs) which is probably not the best way I could describe it, but, um, like there's something like a journey is obviously a, a very quiet game, um, very ponderous with these large, strange architectural features uh, that you're not quite sure uh, how it got there, who made this, or what it was for. And then part of the game is like poking around that to try and try and work it out. The Pathless is like a much less elegant <laughs> version of that, in that uh, it has these 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 enormous towers and um, strange mountain ranges and strange statues and like there are like fallen soldiers and skeletons everywhere of like sort of suggesting battles have been happening between followers of different gods and that sort of stuff Um, but then it will do things like I'll have floating orbs where you can go like above the skeletons where you can go read a little bit of leaden text telling you the backstory like like worse than audio diaries it's just a bit of text that comes up on screen it feels like they wanted to make a game like journey and sort of chickened out or found that it wasn't working and pivoted part way through um and so like when i was initially playing it i was thinking oh this is a less elegant journey this feels clumsy in a bunch of different ways but then it's got a bunch of other things going for it. And so I found myself, I've played a few hours of it now, and I've, I've been having a growing sense of fun over the course of that time. So like, mainly because of the movement mechanic, you, you've got a bow, um, which is always nice. And the world is filled with these winking orbs that float around. And as you shoot them with your arrows they give you a boost of speed as you're running around and so the game becomes about running around this it's this kind of semi-open world and it's got very large open areas but they're gated off from each other and as you're running around you're firing arrows at these orbs to chain together 
boosts of speed so that you can like leap across larger chasms or just move swiftly across the landscape and that immediately feels fun like there's auto targeting on so you just have to hold down left um, trigger to sprint and then keep pressing the right trigger to target and release arrows uh, and that's really nice and then like each area has one of the gods roving around as like a big fiery cursed angry monster um, who moves around the landscape sort of semi-randomly so you can encounter him and have like like a, like a short little stealth section if you get sucked into his his orbit basically as he's moving around the arena um, but really what you want to be doing is finding these little puzzle boxes in the space which are very video gamey much more video gamey than anything i remember there being in, in abzu like abzu i remember having sort of abstract mysterious environmental puzzles whereas this it's pressure plates and um putting heavy objects on pressure plates in order to open doors so you can fire an arrow through some fire get it to go through a hoop in order to open another door and get another heavy weight that you can put on another pressure plate and so forth very simple video gamey stuff but quite satisfying and do, completing those puzzles gets you tokens which you can then use to basically charge up three towers in each area which then trap the boss that's been moving around and allow you to go into like a boss battle. Now the boss battles are pretty decent, mostly because you can't die in them. So there's no threat in, in the game at any point. Like you, I've not died at all. You seem to be able to take infinite amounts of damage and you just kind of get knocked over and then get up again a few seconds later. I don't even think there's a health bar or anything like that I've seen. Um, and so like, it's sort of like, I would describe it as inelegant in terms of its design and deeply original, I feel like, in the solutions it's come to and like the, the, the raw basic content of it. Um, but it's just really pleasant. Like I'm just having a nice time. Like, like in terms of the experience of playing it, I like solving puzzles by moving blocks around and putting things in pressure plate. It's never difficult, but it's dead nice. Um, and I should say, like, you're doing this with the help of an eagle who is like your little buddy. He's technically a god who in the sort of tutorial area seems to die and reincarnate. He's a giant eagle, but he reincarnates as a regular sized eagle. And it's him that you're, you're, you're whistling in order to tell him to, to pick up weights and move them around. And when you get too close to like one of the, the baddie gods, he gets uh, frightened and kind of cursed with this sort of like fiery covering over his over his body that stops him from being able to fly and help you. Um, there's like a glide mechanic that he can kind of carry you and you can hover along a little bit. Um, and in order to restore his strength after those sections, you've got to give him a little pet. So they've actually no. like managed to make petting the animal 2020's biggest new game feature into like a, <laughs> a, a, an actual actually an part of the gameplay in some way i did um as, as you were talking now i looked up uh some images of the game and i saw a, a little video of of that petting animation and it looks really lush i want to i want to touch an eagle like that it's adorable <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like gently gently kind of caress its wingtips with the tips of your fingers it's great it's very tactile. You, you rub his tummy and he sort of lifts his head up and wiggles a bit and as you move your hand over to his wings he kind of stretches out his wings it's really 
beautifully animated. They've obviously they've gone through the world and they've obviously marked points of interest in the world so that if you stand close to them that's where your eagle will land so he really likes corpses so if you're standing near a skeleton <laughs> or anything like that he will just like fly over and just like sit on the corpse's head on the ground hooray for skeleton <laughs> <laughs> getting quite um strong shadow of the colossus vibes from it is that yeah i mean that's the other touch point other than journey i mean it's it's sort of like a journey if there were big monsters roving around and as soon as you do that it's like well those feel like colossi there's nothing as again though like shadow of the colossus is a very quiet game it's like relying on environmental storytelling it's it has such a sense of um awe when you come across those colossi and i think mm. A melancholy or sad or just outright sadness when you fucking brutally murder them there's none of that really in in the pathless it doesn't land emotionally at any point i don't think it really does feel like a game where like i, I climbed a mountain i climbed this big snowy mountain i didn't really know if there was going to be anything up there but there was a big snowy mountain and I like being up at the top of high things in video games. So I'm always going to try and get up. So I climbed my way up the top. There was a fort. Yeah, of course. It's really cool that there was a fort up there. It was a nice reward. Um, and then the fort was filled with like a lot of skeletons um, wearing different colored armor, suggesting that there had been some kind of battle. Like they've gone to a lot of trouble in placing this detail within the world but you're not encouraged to interact with it or explore it in any meaningful way. And like any chance of having that sort of thoughtful relationship with the environment goes away as soon as you cover it with four glowing orbs, each one of which gives you the thoughts of that soldier going, oh no, my God's angry at me and he's going to kill me. I'm dead sad about that. Um, which is like <laughs> suddenly like what few, what was this kind of epic like journey of self exploration just you know, self directed exploration I should say it just becomes oh okay it's it's video game shit isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it's just video game shit isn't it <laughs> put that on the box <laughs> well like I I don't want to be too down on it because I should like that's what I'm saying because uh, I. I I quite like the video game shit. <laughs> um, and there is a thing where so like, I've kind of forgotten the puzzles and the environmental puzzles in Abzu. Um, I mostly just remember that game for having lots of beautiful fish and spending lots of time swimming in circles and encouraging shoals of fish to swarm around me by pressing the button that seemed explicitly designed to do solely that for no particular purpose. Um, but with these games and with Journey, I sort of respect them probably more than I enjoy them. Like, Journey is beautiful and it's very clever in the way that it makes you feel as if you're um, working out what to do yourself while always being kind of, it's being silently communicated to you what you're supposed to do in every situation. It's never actually hard. Um, but it feels like you're working it out yourself. But at the same time, I find the, those games quite lonely to play. And I do often, when dropped into an environment like that, feel anxious because 
I don't know what the puzzle is. I don't know where the edges of the puzzle are. Like if you give me an Alan Hazelden style puzzle or a soccer band or something like that, where I can see all the elements and I know what I need to do, I just can't work out how to do it. Then I'm fine. I'm happy. I'll spend hours if it takes hours to solve that puzzle. Whereas drop me an environment where I can't see yet what the puzzle is. And I start to very quickly have that kind of, feeling of being lost and slightly panicked and wanting to get out um and so i in some ways like the pathless feels like a much less impressive achievement of design uh but at the same time i wonder if i'm actually enjoying it more <laughs> than the alternative because it is just you know blocks and pressure plates it's always explicit it's always very video gamey about what it is you need to do and the flow state you get in with um, the movement mechanics of zipping around this open terrain is matched with a kind of flow state of solving these puzzles as well. Do you think is the the comfort of the the fam- sort of familiarity of those puzzles kind of resonates more because of the time we're in? <laughs> um, I wonder if that's like a, a factor where like we don't demand as much from our entertainment as we normally would, and actually having these systems that we are very familiar with are actually more not therapeutic but like more comfortable to actually engage with yeah i think that's definitely part of it although uh, i think i probably feel like this all the time even when not (laughs) in a pandemic or a hell year i think probably i always want my entertainment to be close to lowest common denominator i quite want to be pandered to if i'm honest Yeah, me too. It's so, so yeah, I don't want to be too down on it because it's not it's not bad. Uh, I have lots of negative things to say about it, but I want to firmly position it as like a six or a seven out of ten. Oh, oh, oh. tasty! A, a six point five, as they say. Now you're talking Tom's language. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I'm right in there. <laughs> I hear you guys have been playing a game that has some similarities to this. Yes. We've been playing <laughs> uh, as a strange yes. Yes, yes, we have been playing a sort of similar game. Um, we've both been playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla, lots of it, like we did last week, but more so. Yeah, like I said, I, I, I thought actually that I might have given up on it by this point, but I, I wanted to play up until the point where I managed to get to Orpington, which is the town that I'm from uh, in Kent. Uh, which has a Roman, I don't know if it's in the game, but it has a Roman villa, So, and it was in the Doomsday book, so there's a, there's a good chance that it is in the game. Um, but that uh, that goal just seems to keep on receding over the horizon, and somehow now I've I've taken a wrong turning for, off the M25 and ended up in Asgard. <laughs> ah, you made it. But I, I do notice that they put Croydon in, and if, they've, if they haven't put Orpington in, but they have put Croydon in, I'll be fucking livid. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know fully what part of fake England this game's set in. Is Brighton in it? Um, I don't really know. It's uh, I'm not quite sure how far I don't west think it goes. It goes. Far west. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think Brighton should be in it. Maybe. Obviously it should. It'll be on the very edge of the map if it is, though. I think in the most f- furthest west corner, probably. But I haven't got down to the coast yet, so I, I can't say. Given how many people in Brighton today have haircuts that make them look like Vikings, I think it's only fair that <laughs> should be representing us. Yeah, quite right. Yeah, it's. I, I'm really enjoying it. 
Um, but it is a sort of very uh, diffuse sort of enjoyment. Um, because if you sort of look at any of the parts of it, I think they don't mm. hold up to scrutiny very well. For, I mean, for example, I spend most of my time swearing at either the character you play. And the, the traversal in the game is sort of often non-functional. Like, I mean, obviously, it's, it's a technological marvel that they've been able to execute across the course of the Assassin's Creed series, all this parkour and uh, free running and stuff. But, um, you know, with... with a good frequency, I would say you leap off the bottom step of a set of stairs and either just flings herself across a room to hold onto a pillar. And you're like, fucking hell, Ivor. <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> and, you know, combat is a, is a bit of a mess. Um, stealth is super overpowered by default. You can just... The AI doesn't seem to know really what to do if you kill them without being seen um they just sort of wander up and down stairs and climb ladders pointlessly then start climbing down the ladders immediately um difficulties all over the place the boss battles are absolutely terrible um and like the facial animation can't really sell a lot of the drama and yet and yet i find i am really enjoying myself (laughs) it's it's just (laughs) it, it feels like it's the you know i mean obviously it's more than the sum of its parts but it might might be the most more than the sum of its parts game <laughs> i mean how do you feel about that tom am i am i overblowing the, it's bugbears or no and um i agree with everything you say uh it's all completely correct and in fact like based on some of the boss fights i faced i put the whole game down to easy uh just because there are some just absurd difficulty spikes that are just absolute nonsense that just should be corrected and i prefer to just simply carve everyone up <laughs> with no effort um with spectacular animations i think the thing that really like keeps me going is that th- even though like avor is a- an empty character he it, whether like, he or she is just nothing i think the, um, the female version has much better voice but i still think like she, she doesn't stand for anything it's just like simply uh, an avatar for you the gamer which is a bit sad because like um, in previous Assassin's Creeds, your character was supposed to stand for something. And the thing about being an RPG or a role-playing game is that you need to oc- occupy a role. And you don't want to occupy an empty role uh, for someone who just wants to kill and maim and pillage. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is functionally like what your clan exists to do in this game. Um, so yeah, I, I find that a bit of a struggle. I find it much, much more interesting when you get out of the shadow of your uh, brother mm. and you're actually like, um, you're in England and you're actually going on like side quests to actually uh, bring people on board and actually kind of like make oaths with uh, different segments of England. Um, and uh, I find that that's a very good system. I, I really like the kind of the pattern of that in terms of how satisfying it is. Yeah. Like you'll, you'll do two, two hours of work not work, but the play, um, then you'll get a good reward and then you'll move on to the next two hours. And you, it gives you the illusion of choice. You don't really have a choice. <laughs> That's the great thing about the system is that um, um, if you go for like the high level early, area like early, you're going to get murdered and it's going to be an absolute nightmare. Um, but it sort of guides you from like the north, right into East Anglia and then down south and I think that's quite elegantly done, actually. I think that's actually, like, it's a way of 
structuring your experience without actually just telling, giving you sort of objective markers, giving you the illusion of choice and, and letting you sort of like feel as though you're expressing your will, even though mm. you're not. <laughs> no, is that your experience, Marsh, with this? Yeah, that's, that, the, the structure of it's really worked for me. I, I think yeah, you, you've nailed it that it gives you, I mean, obviously it is, you are free to go anywhere on the map, but I mean, you'd be pretty unwise to do it out of the, of, of, a pretty evident order um um hmm. but I, all those main quests uh, are much more satisfying to me than any of the main quest lines in previous assassin's creeds like i've i've hmm. typically with assassin's creed games is you sort of begrudgingly engage with the main quest line and then just you're using it essentially to unlock access to areas so you can piss about whereas with this i yep. felt actually the there's a very strong pull to do the individual um quests because they're also also very varied i mean although your ultimate goal is to um further the aims of your settlement that involves a pretty explicit compartmentalization of of that project into doing uh quests to benefit people in the different you know counties of of england and um th those are all so sufficiently varied that it it feels I don't know. It feels a lot more exciting to do. It doesn't feel like you're on this long treadmill slog towards some uh, nebulous narrative goal. It feels like you actually have a real project um, to engage with, and that's that. That is I really satisfying. I, I agree with that, and I, I think the reason for that is that even though Avor as a character is a total kind of you know avatar for you as an empty kind of player, um, the people you meet in each of those dis different like sections are actually really interesting and they actually pose yeah. you interesting challenges so one of them is like a almost like a, a a betrayal mystery who has betrayed this person and you have to go and do missions with each of their inner circle and and, and find out whether or not they are trustworthy or not um and i made the absolute wrong decision oh, really? <laughs> in that quest <laughs> i'm really interested in this because I, I i was i was pretty sure i'd i'd nailed all the facts and then uh I just had this nagging doubt afterwards that I'd. It, That's it exactly what I had. Remembering, um, well, I don't know if this is a spoiler. It requires you to remember having seen somebody somewhere, and um, mm -hmm. I may have just completely misidentified that, that person. <laughs> uh, but they're dead now, so it doesn't really matter. That's a brilliant quest, though. That that's yeah, a really, really good. Really good, good quest line. Um, each of those missions are fun when you're also investigating them, and you get to like you get to have like a personal chat with each of the inner circle and i went I, I went with my brain rather than my heart with the final decision and my heart was right no. <laughs> my brain was wrong no, no. so it tells you if you got it wrong then uh that there are consequences yeah. i see okay <laughs> it's very good it's a very very good mission um sequence and i, I think that's like one of the things that separates it from previous assassin's creed mm. is that like their proper like mainline missions are actually very well designed yeah really and really like engaging and have loads of good characters and i feel as though the the character comes from the npcs in this game rather than the, the avatar uh, as opposed to you know as, you know yeah in the previous assassin's creed I, I am warming to Iva more now um not so much because she has come to stand for anything obviously but because she has chilled out a lot more uh when at the beginning of the game when it's still set in in norway uh 
So she's very much about getting revenge and glory and, and, and these things that I find it quite difficult to empathize with. Um, but I think the idea behind it is that she is quite traumatized by certain events of her childhood and these have come to mm. overshadow her and define her. But I, the, the problem is the game can't really sell uh, a lot of that kind of um, dramatic subtlety with the the, the, the quality of the, the cutscenes that it has and the time that it is able to spend setting that up. Um, and so it feels quite shallow. Um, but I, I think there there probably was more of an effort to to make her into um, a, a bit more of a personality through that revenge drama. But it just seems to have... Now she's reached England, that has dissipated. But I think that's actually for the best because yep. she's just, just a lot more personable to be around basically and and uh, i haven't played as the as the the male iver but the female iver has has really good voice acting and i think actually the writing throughout this assassin's creed is the strongest the series has ever had um mm. even though she herself is not especially kind of explicitly characterized a lot of the kind of dialogue she has it, it feels like it's been edited, which is not something that happens with a lot of games um and uh, <laughs> you know even the 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 tone of it is is pretty um serious throughout uh, again un, not particularly like previous assassin's creed games but i feel like actually for the most part that's very successful and the just the the execution of the dialogue and the fact that it is sort of paying quite a literate level of homage to, to norse shenanigans i think it, it it's reasonably successful in that regard i find that there's a really interesting um friction between uh the Norse ideals and Christianity. Yeah, it does seem like it's engaging with some uh, actually pretty kind of heady stuff, um, which is which is unusual. I mean, not in a kind of heavy-handed way, but in a by-the-by way, it, you know, just in a, the odd line, Ava will reel out some pretty beefy verse, and uh, the other characters will go, "Whoa, check out this poet!" And you're like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, damn right, she's a fucking cool yeah, Norse right. poet." <laughs> yeah, but. Um... Also, the, the idea of like when you're assassinating people of like Christian Hell versus Helheim or Ragnarok or Valhalla, I think that's like an ongoing thing in the game uh, that has been reasonably well observed. Surprisingly, yeah, also, uh, yeah, the way that the the Norse uh, Norsemen view Christianity uh, actually comes up. You know, there's a debate between it. You know, where sure. some characters are like this is ridiculous of them. You know, uh, kneeling before the essentially a torture device which killed their god <laughs> the crucifix well quite and then uh, you know other people are like well i'm sure our traditions just look as funny to them and there's i mean obviously it's a little bit facile but like i mean good on them for even engaging with that that's, that's, that's at, at least it's in there right yeah yeah at least it's in there like um they've actually like thought about it and obviously there are like people probably in the studio that would probably have wanted to put more of that stuff in um but they are making a mainstream hmm. <laughs> uh, triple a game uh, so um yeah but but it's still cool it's cool to see i i also think i was way too quick um to uh judge its depiction of england um we, no, well i don't know if i was too quick the part you arrive in doesn't feel at all like england and um, it does change though yeah i mean the the, the more you roam uh, the the more kind of uh, individual familiar landscapes pop up. They are still all very compressed, but they they do uh, manage to evoke uh, rural England in some some regards. Probably not as it would have been at the time, but you know at least it feels Englandish, uh, and that's pretty good. And I particularly like the the Roman ruins. Uh, it seems like they've really thought 
a lot about what essentially uh, so like a post-apocalyptic Roman settlement would look like. Yeah, you know these are That's these cool. are Roman ruins as we know them. They are half collapsed Roman ruins, and that that is interesting hmm. to see. Um, and also the relationship that local people have to those is is also interesting because they um, they don't necessarily know apart from one character who is basically a fourth wall breaking comedy character who turns up in your settlement um, who's who's there to create a, a Roman museum basically. Um, outside of that, most people don't really know who the Romans were and they refer to them as this ancient race of warriors. I mean, it would have been you know distant past four hundred years ago at a time when writing wasn't very common. I mean, who would have? Yeah. It's not like people would have really remembered necessarily who who the Romans were at that stage. Um, it's an interesting take on it. Uh, it feels very, uh, very evocative. That's definitely, um, that's definitely some energy, and also the fact that we've all lived in Bath, <laughs> yeah. in particular, I think <laughs> perhaps highlights that particular theme. Um, uh, Graham, have you played it? I have not. Should I? What? Like, I haven't listened to last week's podcast, so I don't know how it was covered there. But um, I've never really got on with Assassin's Creed games, but I do like open world action adventure romps. Um, if I played Assassin's Creed for six hours, would I still be stuck in tutorial land, <laughs> having no fun, mm. or or would it would I be having a, a grand old time? Uh... <laughs> Two. <laughs> two to three hours to get out of tutorial land which is norway which isn't very tutorially i have to say no it's very nice as well like it looks great um also if you just want to stick on easy just blast through the opening hours and get to england i think that's a very good way to play the game is it actually good or is it just a pleasant way to pass the time <laughs> uh the latter okay the second I mean, thing you said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I saw a video on Twitter yesterday um, where there's a there's a tribute to the prodigy frontman Keith Flint in his home county of Essex. You can find a man called Keith who uh, talks to you about his love of music and then plays a song in which he sings "Smack My Bishop, Smack My Bishop." Uh. Very that's, good. <laughs> see, that makes me want to play the game. Oh, really? You see, yeah, that's the that's kind good. of thing that wants me to uninstall it right away. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually like the combat system isn't good enough to sustain a hard mode. Um, it's a good like hack and slash thing, and I've played lots of difficult games. Um, but the thing about like playing a difficult game and it being satisfying is that the combat system has to be actually like on point. It has to be sharp, and it actually has to like be fair. And it's just, they still haven't reached that in Assassin's Creed. <laughs> they just haven't. Um, it feels better to me than the last two games. But at the same time, there's no like kind of challenge to it that's worth conquering. Um, so just going down to easy and just chopping everyone up is the best way to play the game, I think, still. Yeah, it's tempting. I need to sign up to Ubisoft Connect or whatever it's called so I can get it. I do really like that there's no um, pointless sort of loot stat juggling in this game. That was the one, my main bugbear with the last game is you picking up swords and hammers and whatever else continuously. And you and I felt obligation to, to min-max that as much as my patience would allow. So I spent a lot of time in those menus just looking at tiny, tiny stat differences and trying to work out which was better and then recycling items individually, which took a huge amount of time. Uh, and in this, basically, 
uh, I think I've, I don't know how many hours I've played it, lots now, and I've just picked up a second bow, <laughs> which in itself doesn't make any fucking sense because actually uh, the way the skill tree works means that you have to put points into particular kinds of bows that you don't have for maybe, yeah. I don't know, 20, 30 hours before you actually get one of those bows, um, which is suggests to me that there's... But they haven't quite squared the circle that a lot of the time some of these these systems are not necessarily the thoughts been put into them, but it hasn't necessarily been connected up with uh, all the other things that are going on in the game. Um, yeah, that, I feel like they're on the right track, though, um, especially I completely agree that uh, the previous two games were always like too RPG heavy yeah. in terms of the amount of like stats and sort of things that you had to consider, particularly as you say much about um, armor and stuff. And having less of that but then when you if you go to one of the glowing kind of gold points on the map and you suddenly find a helmet or a, you find a, a new jersey or something it's like whoa that's awesome and actually kind of that's what rpgs are supposed to give you yeah. i think uh, that rpgs you're supposed to discover things in the environment that actually make your character more exciting and make the game more exciting um whereas like I always feel as though like a lot of people who approach RPGs think about them as like Diablo. Um, yeah. That's a very, very different type of RPG. Like it's not, it's a different game. It's a totally different genre, to be honest. There's, there's something amazing about, uh, yeah, like you say, I mean, it's it's so rare that you pick up something that completely changes your 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 weapon and your play style uh, that it's really rewarding. It's But it's interesting offset against a lot of the other th- the kind of big rewards that you pick up because you might do a fairly involved mission uh which uh, in, involves like raiding a monastery and then you bash down a door and you you get your mate over to, to kind of heave off the, the lid of this huge golden chest and then yeah. it says raw materials obtained like, <laughs> yay raw materials yes yeah. or it's carbon also like ingot every... and you're like fucking great put that on my mantelpiece yeah (laughs) there's also every single animal you kill no matter what it is drops leather um whether it's (laughs) like a bird or a seal um and actually like i think that's a good thing i think it's i think the like i think the language is bad for it like the writing is bad for it but i think i like the idea that animals just drop one animal resource (laughs) Uh, rather than having the kind of bothersome multiple different types of animals that you have in like Far Cry games, mm. for example. To, um, so I think like everything you kill in nature drops uh, nature fuel, <laughs> whatever the <laughs> hell you want to call it. It doesn't have to be, it shouldn't be leather because that's just wrong. But, uh, you know, meat, I, credits. I th- <laughs> <laughs> meat credits. Meat credits. That's what it should be. And then uh, you spend meat credits on whatever the hell you know and um, I, I think that's like they've done a good job of streamlining the system but there's almost like a kind of uh, a language problem with the way they've expressed it <laughs> to the player it sounds like it's a seven out of ten but a really good seven out of ten like if seven out of ten is a genre this is high up there yeah that's, that's probably on the money so marsh um i wondered like given all of the you know our grievances with this like what actually keeps you playing it what is the kind of Orpington, man. Yeah. The glory of Orpington. No, there must be more than the that. Like... Shining spires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is it? Why am I playing it? I don't really know. Do you know? 
what I've learned is that if you equip an axe in the left hand and then hold the left bumper, you hit someone about 20 times a second <laughs> with that axe. <laughs> and that's what keeps me playing. <laughs> Should we do some uh, questions? Some questions? You know what? I think that's just the ticket. I think so too. Just the thing. It's agreed. It's agreed. <laughs> Jim has written in to say, Hi, box mashers and ammo containers. First, thanks for the podcast. I've been a big fan since before this was the Crate and Crowbar. Secondly, I've recently mm. realised that I do not play the same games to relax as many, likely more sane people. Whilst others seem to relax by playing, well, relaxed games, I tend to do the opposite when stressed. Rather than switching out my Destiny addiction for a more chill game, I often find myself booting up Doom, Super Hexagon, or similarly fast-paced titles. I think I do this because once I stop, rotating hexagons have been my primary source of stress for so long that I forget what I was otherwise worried about. Mm. Do any of you have any weird gaming habits when stressed beyond the usual chill soundtracks and numbers that go up formula? Thanks more weeding, Jim. I really like this question because um, it highlights the fact that people relax in different ways and things that are like conventionally considered to be stressful can be actually distracting and occupying for some people i'm very much one of those people um which is why i've been playing killer seven as my chill out game recently on pc uh it's got a pc port it's a, a game about invisible suicide bomber demons that come at you <laughs> <laughs> relentlessly um and as they do so they shriek and cackle and it's basically a horror game but i find it tremendously relaxing it's just really nice to just hit those weak points and send them off, send them off to bed. Um, and I, I just do, I find it kind of endlessly fascinating what people find relaxing or don't find relaxing. I think there's like a, there's this sense that, oh, you're supposed to, you know, um, play Journey or play Flower or play something that's like encourages you, to, <laughs> encourages you to do deep breathing and kind of like really kind of relax into the world whereas actually sometimes the best thing for me is just to shoot some stuff <laughs> in a in a very good video game that's ostensibly stressful but actually like ultimately quite cathartic and i feel much calmer afterwards hmm. it's like i said before i find journey quite stressful because i or at least the first time I played it, because I didn't know what was expected of me, when really what I find most relaxing is having a job, <laughs> um, because I know exactly <laughs> what's expected of me. So the games I play most to relax are, say, Football Manager, um, where I'm going to spend my time thinking about transfers and plotting the next uh, transfer window that's coming up, or City Skylines, where I'm trying to solve a road network in order to make traffic problems disappear so these little people can get to work in time in the morning. Um, games with busy work, where there is always another plate that needs spinning, um, but there are very little actual consequences. That's what I'm playing to relax. Anna writes in to say, Dear Creighton Crowbar Crew, in episode 348, one of you mentioned that he couldn't go to sleep unless he had seen a disemboweled horse screaming beforehand. This made me wonder, <laughs> what are some of the most disturbing moments in video games you've experienced? What do you think makes these moments disturbing? Thanks for answering, Anna. For me, it's um, the 
bath scene in What Remains of Edith Finch. Um, mm, yep. I don't know how much to describe it for fear of spoilers, um, but when I played that game, I had, I think my kid was maybe 18 months old, and I give him baths a lot. Um, you can kind of guess what the bath scene is in What Remains of Edith Finch now. Mm. Um, and so it's just, it's a thing you're thinking about anyway, of like, don't ever take your eyes off your child for a second while they're in the bath. Right. Because they can't set themselves up if they fall over, basically. And so I played What Remains of Edith Finch, and it's a, it's a game with a lot of death in it, but it's kind of Tim Burton-y deaths. They're, they're slightly tragicomic. Um, and so I didn't find any of them affecting, except for that one which just mm. fucking destroyed me. I was just sobbing at my computer <laughs> pretty much instantly. Oh. And then, uh, you know, this was in a, a little shared office with my partner. And when I turned around, she was watching over my shoulder and she was sobbing as well, basically. Oh, gosh. Uh, I don't think she could even hear it. She was just, you know, because I had my headphones on. But yeah, Christ. I mean, it's it's a really cheap bit of manipulation, especially when you're targeting, well, not explicitly targeting or but um especially for new parents like mm. children in peril uh it's just it's gonna get you every time i think so like so many so much media pulls that lever um and like i don't have kids myself but like i can absolutely see transparently when a film was like oh let's put a child in danger to generate <laughs> to create emotion it's like it's the, it's the cheapest easiest thing you can do and also like i'm not sure that edith finch i, I think it i'm not sure Edith Finch ba- like backs it up enough with enough like reason to do that i don't know what you think graham like about like how justified that was no i don't think so is the thing like all the other deaths are comical in some way yeah and like exactly. you know it's it's someone taking a, a photograph and kind of tripping and falling off a cliff in a, a slightly funny way and some of them are you know there is there's some genuine feeling behind it it's not all yuck 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 or anything like that um and like the bath scene it's presented from a first person perspective you are Mm -hmm. the child in the bath and i think you pull the plug out yourself and it's a kind of musical sequence so the 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 toys in the bath swirling around and the water pouring in is all timed to this um, piece of classical music um but it no it's not it's not funny enough essentially and it's it's just a horrible real thing that actually happens right yeah um you know as opposed to like a hermit getting obsessed with trains or a strange like guy working in a fish factory who gets you know whisked away into his own dream world sort of thing everything else is much more fantastical than this which is a i feel grounded in a much darker reality uh and i yeah i love that game i think it's a brilliant game I wish it didn't have that particular scene in it. Like that scene alone guarantees I will never replay that game, basically. Yeah. And, yeah. and likewise, if I'm watching a film or a television show and there is serious child and peril as a plot point, I'll just stop watching that. I'll just turn it off. I don't need that in my life. I'm fine. Of course. Yeah, of course. Even as, yeah, as I said, like I don't have a kid, but like I see it all the time in films and television and not so much in games, actually. They don't tend to go into that territory. But they uh, like there's it's the easiest lever to pull is to put a kid in danger 
and then any parents who are watching will be automatically like all you know set off those yep. uh instincts and that that horror and that paranoia and it's just such a cheap way to get an emotional reaction i think um mm. especially uh, when like kids are so poorly represented in games in other contexts like how many like sort of child characters have you met in games that are actually like realistic <laughs> <laughs> ever next to none if you're talking about realism i think so i like i met um a couple of very good friends i met their two-year-old she's not even two actually but like her inquisitiveness and like her sort of like grasping at language and everything that was wonderful about like interacting with her and saying hello and meeting her i've never experienced that in games or even films um it feels like just they're very very bad at like games have never even attempted to capture what children actually like um but yeah, again, like Graham, you're, <laughs> you actually have children, so uh, you're much better place than me to actually judge this. No, I mean, yeah, I completely agree with you. There's certainly nothing from that kind of age range. And when I think about older, like you know, six, seven, eight year olds, you get into like mm. Princess Maker Two, <laughs> um, yeah. creepy father who uh, you know sends your kid off to do battle in the forest or trains them to become a housewife. Uh, that's the sort of experience I tend to think of. There's just, a, there's just, there's not that many. I mean, what, like the, the, the settlement and fallout three is a little lamplight or something like that, which is yeah, populated a, by children. But that's true. But they're not really children, are they? <laughs> no, they're not really children. I mean, I don't know if this is a problem that I necessarily want video games to solve, though. No, because, sure, Because sure. <laughs> uh, I have it in my real life, and it's um, <laughs> <laughs> not a source of escapism. So no. Call of Duty needs is more, more babies. Oh, God, don't put babies in Call of Duty. <laughs> As playable characters, gun-toting. <laughs> Rocket launchers on each shoulder. Yeah. Go to Iraq. Get them. <laughs> Metal Gear Solid Five has child soldiers in it. You can yeah, but, rescue but that, the little helmets. But that's fucking stupid, isn't it? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's <laughs> so bad. That bit is so bad. And these, dis- but this this is disturbing because it's uh, you. You think it's been artistically unsuccessful? Mm. Have there been moments in games which have been you've you've been disturbed by them and you've gone, hmm, yes, that is. That was well done. Bravo. Bravo. Um, I think, not uh, to be honest, the answer is no. Um, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say some of the um, monster design in Silent Hill 2 was uh, like it was a very earnest attempt to gesture at like, actual psychological horror uh, that tapped into themes more than, let's say, most monsters just want to eat you, right? Like, they just want to like bite you and kill you, and that's the end. Whereas uh, there was actually like a weirdly sexual elements to a lot of the silent hill um mm. enemies and like an abuse like a, a child abuse element to be honest um that was incorporated into the design of those creatures that actually made it much more affecting than any other horror game that i've played ever since Natural Selection 2 <laughs> has a monster that can swallow you whole and then you punch your way out of its anus <laughs> through, a, through a puckered a puckered wall from the inside. Uh, catharsis of sorts. It's, um, it's pretty gross in a kind of 
really distinct way. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I don't. I don't want to be disturbed, and so I think pretty much any instance in which I am feels feels bad, man. Like I don't, I don't ever think, oh, well done, well done for disturbing me. I'm not sure it would be. I'm not sure it's difficult to disturb me. Is the thing. So I think it usually mm. feels cheap or trashy or yeah, just unwanted in some way. To me. I, the stuff that I feel actually disturbs me isn't just like straightforward violence or straightforward gore or a, a thing with big teeth. It's just like offbeat social interactions that are just a bit wrong. Um, that films do extremely well. And when they want to, uh, like a David Lynch or something like that, like a, you know, a Bong Joon Ho film, you know, what what was his latest one? Um, Parasite. Parasite. Yeah, exactly. Where there's just like slightly offbeat interactions and manipulation. I find that just disturbing. Um, whereas gore just feels like tawdry to me, and that's what games trade in. Like games trade in gore and teeth and things being ripped apart and jibs and that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm not sure that games should take on that role. Like, no one's asking games to to be that kind of media. Uh, and though the kind of interactive element, it's just that there's some potential there. But again, like as you were saying, Graham, like, do we want games to do this? Like, yeah, I don't know. I think of all the moments that are disturbing games, that they are moments where I feel that the game has failed in some way. In it, like it's disturbed me across the fourth wall. Maybe what disturbs me is the developer's lack of appreciation for how disturbing this thing should be. Mm, um, like in, right. in one of the, the Saints Row games, I think I've told this story in the podcast before, where there's just a, a, a side quest where you uh, you get a container full of trafficked women and you basically um, sell them to somebody else. Uh, and it's all treated as a, a, a big joke um, and an excuse to have scantily clad female models uh, in the game and uh the just the <laughs> just, that was was one of the most depressing moments of my games journalism career um mm. and I, I had to go for a long walk and think about my life choices after, <laughs> after playing that no um, quite reasonable yeah no that's really true so that was i mean le- legitimately disturbing but the game had no idea that it was disturbing right right and that was what was disturbing about it <laughs> i think call of duty as well i think like I know we rag on Call of Duty a lot, but it's only because it deserves it. <laughs> um, just the sort of ahistorical um, the kind of sort of reframing of history, I find that disturbing. Oh, as yeah. Uh, yeah, just as, as kind of like re- like trying to put heroes and villains into a, a conflict that was horrible on all sides. Um that is a kind of, I find that disturbing in an Orwellian way. Yeah, I mean, that complete that, like, lack of understanding history has real-world consequences. Um, for sure, um, yep. Absolutely, absolutely right. I feel like it's extra disturbing when a lot of Call of Duty games use real-world footage in their openings. Like, they'll often have some sort of intro cinematic that will include mm. real footage from... The Vietnam War, say, including footage of captured soldiers being executed, shot in the head at point blank range. Now, this is like famous um, 
war reportage. And so it's like footage that you might have seen before mm. in a documentary context, but they yeah. are placing that <laughs> that disturbing true footage of actual people actually dying <laughs> alongside the ahistorical fucking Bond-like action-adventure movie that the rest of the thing is. Um. Yeah, yeah, that's fuck. sickening. That's sickening. Um, I remember, like, I think that's actually, um, I, I think it was Sega Relic did this with Company of Heroes 2, where they actually, the first trailers were just pure, like, war footage and with a, a voiceover. I was like, don't do that. Just just don't, don't do that. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's already difficult enough that we're having, we're, making entertainment out of that war. Um, but to actually incorporate the real-life footage of that stuff is just too much. It's too much. But yeah, no, you're right, Graham. It's easy to rag on Call of Duty for this stuff, but it's a real problem with a lot of strategy games as well. For sure. Partic- particularly like games like Hearts of Iron, for example, which let you carry out sort of alternate history takes on World War II anyway. Uh, and allow you to play as any side without any real moral framework. Right. Like you can play as the Germans um, and they will have stats differences from the other sides, but it doesn't necessarily contextualize uh, anything beyond that. And, and there are obviously a, a lot of people on the internet and in the world who will deny certain parts of mm-hmm. World War II ever took place and yep. who will divorce the realities of war from, oh, they just really like tanks and they fetishize the uniforms and, oh, yeah, you know, the Germans were bad, but they were really good at military maneuvers and they were, you know, like they were good at this, that, and the other thing. And these games give them a platform for exploring that stuff simulating that stuff reenacting it divorced from that reality or any moral judgment um and so you get a real problem with forms of white supremacy and historical revisionism on strategy game forums yes yeah um, yeah that, Graham, that's a really good point i've encountered this massively uh, like i enjoy war games i paint little miniatures i do little kind of wars with them but normally in like high fantasy contexts um there's actually really there are really good rule sets based around uh world war ii era armory and infantry and uh they i'm very tempted to play it except i don't want to lovingly paint a nazi half track um right i never like yeah that's that's not the hobby i want um you could have a simulation, you could have a sort of like, and to be honest, there is a kind of fascination with the the conflict in that era because um, the machinery and the technology was so evenly matched that it made for extremely interesting encounters. Uh, but we shouldn't be looking at those encounters as interesting because... So many people were murdered in those <laughs> encounters, um, and it, like, uh, the idea that you can sort of um, read a rule sets and roll some dice to resolve this and be like, "Oh, that's an that's an interesting standoff," 
and then somehow divorce that from the reality of what you're trying to represent. For me, that's impossible. I can't do that. Um, but I think a lot of, you know, wargaming communities do. And they're just happy to sort of like um, extrapolate from, you know, the equipment that each force had and then roll it off as a jewel without any of the context that the, the necessary context that should be part of what you're replicating. Um, turning that into a game, I think, like, I have, a more, I have a moral problem with it. I'll be honest, like, I can't get past it. How do you feel about Crusader Kings? Uh, so I've not played most Crusader Kings, but I think what you're gesturing at here is, like, if is there enough distance between the conflict that you can kind of get past the qualms? Is that is that what you kind of... Is that what you're Yeah, going? it's like it's kind of come up a bunch in the Crusader Kings community because when that series launched, I don't know how long ago, the first game would have been 15 years ago now, maybe longer. Um, it felt like the relationship with that period of history was more innocent, or at least the the alt-right and the racists weren't yet so prominent on the internet and within culture because Mm. for example they released an expansion for crusader kings one i think called deus vault and deus vault is is a it's a latin catholic rallying cry um, associated with the crusades but it's come back to prominence because it's being used by the alt-right um, as like representative of a culture war between Christianity and Islam, or between the West and the Middle East, and that sort of stuff. Like it's it's a it's a racist dog whistle. It's yeah, more of just a racist whistle. To be honest, it's not really <laughs> yeah. much of a dog whistle. Right. Um, and so then it becomes this problem of like, well, how it's it's an also also a historical term. There was, like I say, there was an expansion that used that name for the first game. How do you represent it in Crusader Kings 3 where the context in which the game is being released is, is very different? Um, it's it's tricky. Like it, and, and like you, a lot of people were playing Crusader Kings 3 when it came out a few months ago. And you know, they're not actually going on a crusade in that game. Like the crusades are only a small part of what Crusader Kings is about, particularly now in the third iteration. You sort of wish they would just kind of rename it Medieval Jape Simulator. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, it's just silly dynasties and trying to kill your children now. <laughs> to yeah, so back to that. If, I, if I recall correctly, um, the, the, the Pope occasionally asks you to, you know, come on a crusade. But you could just ignore him and then just carry on with your business, right? Like, that's kind of how the game yeah, works. pretty much. More or less. Yeah, and you can also... Wasn't, was it Tom who was playing who said that he... Tom F, sorry, who led a crusade against Wales? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's ahistorical to a huge degree. Uh, in a way that, in some ways, I think it's good. It's better. <laughs> like, I don't want a game about the actual Crusades. Not yeah, right sure. now. <laughs> sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of blurry lines with this stuff, I think, in terms of how it's represented. Yeah, this is definitely sort of 
a problem that's been running throughout all of like wargaming in um, video games as well as like tabletop games for decades where like there are people who want to actually relitigate uh particular scraps on the you know the borders of you know france and german occupied territory in the world war ii with exactly the correct equipment exactly the correct you know attire and that's a kind of like i don't know that's very very depressing to me (laughs) (laughs) uh in a way that it just feels as though you can read about it and understand the consequences of it without having to sort of celebrate it in that way. I feel like that is, I think, I think uh, there's a point where it is a celebration. Like if you're actually making a game about a thing, putting loads of hours into recreating uh, livery and uniforms and tanks, I think that's a form of celebration. Um, I think if you're producing models that people are painting, I think that's a form of celebration. Um, I think all of that stuff just elevates evil machines and evil methods of uh of war that we should leave behind um don't at me (laughs) (laughs) don't at me (laughs) that might be the podcast title this this week (laughs) (laughs) oh i'm gonna get so much so many complaints but you know that's what i think what are you gonna do (laughs) i I agree. I'll throw my lot in with you. Don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't at Graham. At me. Don't at Graham. Leave Graham alone. <laughs> I'll take the brunt of this. I think we've. I think we've sort of answered that question. Uh, we may have answered nope. several other questions. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely. I don't think we answered that one. But yes, you're right. Uh, sorry, Anna. Anyway. Uh, Lord Monkfish writes in uh, about uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Um, he has a complaint uh, with it that the handling of stealth isn't particularly good. At every point, I feel funneled towards combat, less opportunity or incentive to silently clear an outpost. While the last game had its war battlefields and bosses, you were otherwise free to play the assassin. In Valhalla, certain enemies cannot be assassinated. The prompt simply doesn't exist, and many missions involve fighting as a group. Does anyone in the pod have any thoughts about stealth in this especially cookie-cutter instalment of Assassin's Creed? Who knew Vipers plagued Britain in the Middle Ages? That last point in particular is one of the most irritating things about uh, Assassin's Creed. It's like, I know we've got adders here. Do we actually have nests of Vipers? Oh, well, Vipers are adders. Oh. They are, but just, they just, <laughs> it's just a different name for them. Um, but they... Um, they oh, they're not very oh, aggressive, right, and there are very, very few of them. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a pretty safe country as far as wildlife goes, which is another reason that it's a kind of unusual choice for an Ubisoft setting. Um, now, I tell you what is weird about uh, Valhalla, though. There are so many fucking herons. Occasionally, you see a heron in this game. Like there are flocks of herons, just herons, and <laughs> herons for fucking miles. Herons from horizon they've to got, horizon. They've got uh, they've got seagulls, right? Though. They're everywhere as well. Mm. Uh, they're also like they fly very, very slowly, which is not my experience. Because yeah. I was in Cornwall and I had an ice cream, and one of them like swoop bombed me, grabbed the ice cream with its claws, flew off, um, fell into the water, <laughs> and was never seen again. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> <laughs> it was much faster than the um, 
seagulls I've seen in Assassin's Creed. So, you know, wow. do your research, folks. You were lucky. Had that been a heron, you would have lost an arm. So that would be, uh, yeah, that would be the end of me. I was going to say, you should be able to pet the herons in the way that you can pet your eagle in oh, yeah. the pathless. Oh, let me pet Everyone a heron. Tummy rub. That's what it's all about. I want to stroke a heron's beak. Yeah, but herons are rubbish, though. Like, what? Yeah, herons are great. They're like a direct connection to the uh, dinosaur kin. You see one taking yeah, flight, but... and you're like, that's a fucking pterodactyl. Yeah, but then you, you could see a bloke on the street, and you might have a direct connection to the Queen of England, and you're like, you're still a fucking twat, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I like herons. I think you're giving herons a bad rap. That's Maybe so, maybe so. But as for the stealth... <laughs> um, I find that the stealth, the stealth works really badly in this game. Um, and maybe it's because I'm bad at the game. But like when I've actually tried to take stealthy attempts at missions, after the first person I've assassinated, everyone is alerted. And I've no idea how to avoid that. Um, so I feel like um, it, you know, the game prioritizes all-out combat. With axes, yeah, it's very confusing. It doesn't really. Um, I, I've I've completed some assassination missions just by sneaking in and killing the the main dude, and sneaking out again. And and sometimes I've completely cleared an entire outpost silently. But uh, then at other times, it seems like it does railroad you into direct combat. And there's certain missions like the raids, which require you to do it with your cohort, and so you can clear out an entire um, village basically of people by yourself and then because you can't open a chest by yourself you need to honk yeah. your, this big horn and have all your fellow raiders pour off a boat and get into a big barney with enemies who've suddenly respawned and that that kind of does that does uh, suck a giant viking dong it's rubbish but, yeah especially because like once you've upgraded one part of your settlement you have like a second like a kind of commander riker um that you get to customize and like the great solution to this would be to press a button to summon him and he just spawns over your shoulder, comes in, helps you to open the door, helps you to do the other stuff. Like the and horse. Also, you can summon anybody. Like the horse. The horse should help you with those chests. That's what should happen. The, ho- the, ho- <laughs> the horse should help you. Uh, and also, I love that in this game, you can summon the boat like you summon a horse. Yeah. <laughs> so you can just honk a horn and then... The, the camera pans over to you as you're blowing the horn and it pans back out and the boat is suddenly there. It's like, wow, this is the best, best transport ever. I like the, I um, like the thought that they are, they've been silently following you, carrying this boat around the whole time. Like, like, you know, a, a, like a film very crew quietly. behind Bear Grylls or something when he's in those <laughs> pseudo solo <laughs> filming segments somewhere in the desert. And you just know there's like five other people there waiting to mop his brow as soon as the camera stops rolling. Yeah, he's like, oh, I need to drink loads of water so that my stomach feels like it's full. And then um, the camera moves away and someone just feeds him three sliders. I watch a lot of like vlogs on YouTube, like travel vlogs of people that do solo traveling and they legitimately are on their own. They're, they're not out in the wilderness. They're in populated <coughs> places. But it just makes me... Th- conscious all the time of the fact that they're placing down a camera walking off towards the distance then cutting but really what happens at that point is they have to turn around run back get their camera pick it up carry it to another spot place it down walk in front of it as if going up this mountain 
cut, come back, front, get the camera. Like they're just constantly faking their own walking away and then having to double back on themselves. And that's all I think about when I watch travel vlogs on the internet now <laughs> is just that is the fact that they're double backing on, on themselves constantly. So I think about I'm, that. I'm glad, I'm glad that Bear Grylls has a crew <laughs> that carries equipment <laughs> for him. <laughs> I, I I love that about all real, like reality TV. Um, so there's one at the start of this year, which I think it's like it's called Love Is Blind, um, and like the way this works is you've got a bunch of blokes on one side of a flat, and then you've got a, a bunch of um, women on the other side of the flat, and then they each go into rooms that uh, with each other, but there's a screen between the men and the women. And they have to try and make a connection. And at the end of the uh, process, uh, after four weeks, they have to decide who they want to marry. <laughs> and <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> okay. Yep. 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 Skip yep. some stages, stages there. Wow. Yep. Uh, stakes are high. Stake... Uh, Countenance this kind <laughs> of mayhem. Uh, the stakes are high, and I recommend watching the first season of this because it like it will definitely come back because it was really successful. But everyone going into it in future will know how it's supposed to go. Um, and they will kind of like play up and, you know, big up their Instagram personality as part of it, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's fantastic to watch the first season because once they've actually decided who they want to pair up with, they go into a, a flats. They go to a, like a, a series of, you know, uh, flats together. And the way the arguments are filmed so so fake it's <laughs> remarkable to see so there's like uh there's a bit where there's um a woman who's just like sunning crossed arms in the kitchen and the guy's in the bedroom just like about i don't know 10 meters away and he's got his arms crossed and then um <laughs> she insults his uh, um sexual ability and then it, it cuts over to him and he just sort of shakes his head and what you're thinking at all of these times is like there are cameras right here pointing at both of you and you've put them in exactly the right place to capture this nonsense <laughs> pretend piece of drama <laughs> and that is like that's a i love that meta drama <laughs> almost as like how the producers kind of stimulate the drama or make the drama happen and how the cameras kind of like capture it in such an artificial way um but yeah anyway that's nothing to do with video games <laughs> good video game chat did, did, did we answer the question oh yes yeah ubisoft can learn a lot from this segment <laughs> i think those were all the questions that we have time for if you'd like to send us a question, you can do so at questions at creatingcrowbar.com or you can tweet us at creatingcrowbar. All these recordings are uploaded as videos to YouTube where you can find other nonsense by us. The address for that is youtube.com slash creatingcrowbar. Thanks as always to our Patreon backers. You can back us too at patreon.com slash creatingcrowbar or you can simply join our lovely Discord community, the link for which is on our website creatingcrowbar.com. That's it. I've been Marsh Davis and I'm off to pet a heron. <laughs> and I've been Graham Smith and I'm off to pet an eagle. My name's Tom Senior. I'm going to hunt throughout the night to pet a golden retriever somewhere in this city. <laughs> um, my uh, Twitter account is now Mr. Tom Senior. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, it was the only one that wasn't taken. Um, so, yeah, if you want to catch up with my ridiculous uh, Assassin's Creed thoughts, that's the place to do it.
Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>